A veteran composer with many high-profile film and television scores to his credit, Brazilian pianist Marcelo Zarvis was born in Sao Paulo. Initially studying classical music, Zarvis attended Berklee College of Music and Cal Arts and later became an active in the jazz world, releasing a highly praised collaboration with saxophonist Peter Epstein called Dualism. His creative endeavors also expanded to include rock, electronic, and world music, a versatility that he would eventually parlay into a highly successful career of composing film music. Zarvis's credits include The Good Shepherd, The Words, Brooklyn's Finest, The Face of Love, Reaching for the Moon, Sin Nombre, Hollywoodland, Adult Beginners, The Humbling, Little Accidents, American Ultra, and Enough Said. Twice nominated for Primetime Emmy Awards, Zarvis's television works include Too Big to Fail, The Big C, Extant, Phil Spector, and two Showtime series, The Affair and Ray Donovan. I'm Amanda Saletti, an associate podcast producer and interviewer for the creative process. I'm a senior at the University of South Carolina studying visual communications in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. As a student, I really admired Marcelo's analysis of self-criticism. Marcelo seems quite critical of his own work, but he explains how most artists struggle with this and how art is an educational experience. In other words, we learn from our mistakes. It's easy to feel lost or even defeated at times, not only as a student, but I think everyone experiences these feelings from time to time. I think it's important to see our mistakes as lessons, to learn and grow and change from them. It's even okay to show your mistakes sometimes. They can be beautiful. There's something pure and refreshing about mistakes in my opinion. Personally, as I'm wrapping up college and moving into the next chapter of my life, I can relate to this very much. I'm very thankful for my education as well as my background and the way I grew up. I wholeheartedly agree with Marcelo's idea of how boredom can spark creativity, just as daydreaming and playing outside as a child influences our imagination even as adults. My most vivid memories as a child are playing outside with friends, riding bikes, drawing with chalk, and swimming at the pool. I think this is something that's kind of lost in today's society. No one is bored anymore, there's always something to do, and if not, we binge watch TV or stare at our phones. Even small children have iPads and iPhones nowadays. I find myself a much happier person if I put away my cell phone for a couple of hours, or read a few chapters in a book, or even go on a walk and get some fresh air. Detaching myself from technology really allows me to focus and appreciate other things that are truly more important to me, and I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. When I graduate, I'm not sure what I'd like to do yet. Maybe graphic design or something with photography. I'm learning how to code at the moment, so maybe web design. I have many passions, so it's difficult to pick just one. Hopefully I can find a job where I can utilize all of my skills. Just like many other students, graduating and finding a job is very intimidating, especially in the creative field. There are so many factors that go into creating a design or piece of art. Meeting the client's needs, catering to a certain audience, technicalities and regulations, and getting your message across all contribute to the work as a whole. The details an artist must consider are endless. As Marcelo said, art can be very subjective. It is nearly always up for interpretation, and the different messages a piece presents can construct multiple paths that lead to the same beginning. And as artists, we must remember these things.
If you're just joining us, we're talking with pianist and composer Marcelo Zavas. Okay, uh, Marcelo Zavas, welcome to the Creative Process. Uh, Thank you. Very nice to be here. Yeah, so I'm just, uh, you're, you're primarily, now we were just discussing your, your wor early work for, for dance uh, theatre, but you're primarily now composing for um, film and television. But, but just um, looking back, um, it's just a kind of odd question, but I was having a, a, a conversation with some people um, you know, who are um, visually impaired, who are blind, and we were, uh, they were discussing about getting hotel rooms and wanting to get a... Um, they never seem to get a good room because they think they are blind. So they will give them something with no view or whatever. And they're discussing how much uh -huh. it is important, the sounds that come through the window. It's not just the view, it's this whole feeling and this sense. So I guess I, I'm, this is a roundabout question. As you think about your upbringing in uh, Sao Paulo, what were some of those uh, sense memories, those musical memories as you made your way towards music? Even though I, I was brought up in Sao Paulo and I lived there until I was 18, mm -hmm. Brazil, you you know, at least we had a lot of access to nature. Mm -hmm. And so I would feel like in terms of what impacted my music was probably more the time I spent in nature than the time I spent in the city, right. if that makes any sense. Yeah. At least that's, you know, we all carry in our hearts those memories that are, you know, nostalgia kind of creating memories and that's always been for me, nature was a big thing. I feel like my ur urbanization of my music, if you can call that, but not in the traditional mm -hmm. urban sense, but just in the sense of being inspired by the city, really happened when I moved to New York as a, as a grown-up. And then I think New York had a very big impact in my life. In the way that Marcelo, I'm sorry to interrupt you. There's just been this incredible siren here. I, I think you can hear it. I'm so sorry. Can you go back a little bit okay, on that? Because no I think problem. it might be lost, what you just said. Yeah, just, just a few okay. sentences, yeah. So, I, you know, um, as far as how much Sao Paulo, the sound of the city, had an influence in, in, in my early music, I would say that actually was the time that I spent in nature as a child that, that and a young, you know, young man, a teenager, that really, I feel like, had the biggest impact in my music as far as sound and feel and emotionality, I guess. And I feel like, as far as the having a big impact on my music it was probably not until I moved to New York out of college that I I feel like New York had a very big impact in my in my language and in the way that I see music and art and life and it's the place that I did the longest and and as far as like my early memories and sometimes it's a selective thing you know we all hold on to the memories that we want to have and we want to remember and and definitely I would say that the nature was 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 a big thing for me you can definitely hear that in, the, in, your, in your different pieces. I, I did feel this as well, flowing or this sense. It seems to me, I don't know, I'm not intelligent when I speak about music. I just have this sense of flowing or things growing. I imagine like a, a plant growing and very harmonious. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Without a doubt, I feel like that there's something in, in pretty much everything that I do that, that has a little bit of that contemplative thing. And it's, it's something very also um, very um, compatible with music itself, you know, this idea of flowing and all of that, but certainly flowing is probably one of the qualities of my music that is almost the most like omnipresent qualities in my music. Yes, and I read that, that you didn't, because I'm thinking about, say, other 
other kinds of music. Excuse me, I don't know what happened there. Um, I'm thinking maybe other composers where there's there's not um yes it seems to flow and I read that you said that you didn't like I don't know what that is. Um, hello. What's going on? I don't know. This is some leafy on there. I don't I don't know this, but um. Uh. So yes, that you don't often compose for particular characters in, uh, in a television show or film. Is, is that true? I mean, as you're approaching it, you're thinking more of the whole, or? Yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends really on the on on the story. I mean, I think the reason I've said that before in interviews, and it, it is that I find that at least half the time, what you're doing is, I feel like they're more like emotional things rather than characters. And so, you know, in, in a lot of times I feel like the music is serving out the characters in different sides of their, you know, their psyche. Certainly there are shows like The Affair where there were character themes for, for, for all of the different characters. And on Ray, we've also had a fair amount of character themes, but it's definitely not my go-to thing. It's like, okay, let's do a, a theme for a character, simply because over time I've noticed that it was the way that the music would ultimately land in a movie was always a little bit almost like regardless of the character in a lot of in a lot of circumstances and it was more about the emotional content of a scene of a, or, or of a sequence um, and and you know people tend to really talk in film scoring and TV scoring like characters important and you know they're obviously great characters in all over, you know, film and TV literature, but I feel like it, in the, it, perhaps it also says something about the kinds of projects that I do, that perhaps there is a, always, or a lot of the times, a complexity, a dramatic and, and moral and emotional complexity in the characters and the stories themselves, which then uh, don't lend themselves as well for, like, a character. Uh, or yes. a single character theme. I see. So in a way, almost when you speak about a character theme, maybe that would be perhaps to do it all the time would be like too on the nose and not allow for like uh, as much subtlety or subtext or, you know, mingling of people yeah. not knowing what they're doing. Yeah. Exactly, because sometimes, you know, the, the, the piece is, is, you know, music is very, very abstract. And although we try to assign meaning to music, especially film that kind of corresponds to, to a, a dramatic event, I find that it works a lot more, in a lot more uh, of a flowing kind of way, to, to get back to what we are talking in the beginning. And, and what I found is that over the years I would write music for a certain character, and then the filmmakers would cut the music around in other places that were not their character, and sometimes they worked even better. Mm. And then, you know, it, it really got into the situation of me really feeling like you listen to the film and listen to the show or whatever is on the screen and try to to see what it needs um, and what it's telling you that it needs, which is a, an abstract concept, but a very, very real concept. A director I've worked with many times said that, you know, the music, the, the, the movie will spit out the music it doesn't want. And I really observe that a lot and 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 so sometimes you know as i said a, a character theme would start finding its way to other characters but 
there might have been a, an emotional quality that was uh, hitting in a similar way. And also there's another uh, element of all of that, which is, I find very interesting, which is how characters can sort of score the music, if you will. Because if you use the same piece of music in different situations or, or two different characters, they are themselves going to color what that music means. And I find that to be a lot more interesting and fascinating of a process than just about anything else and how a same, the same piece of music could be colored in different ways and take on different meanings with the viewer. Oh yes, so something brought in again that was brought in at the beginning and that emotional resonance and things like that. It's, um... Exactly, exactly. And sometimes just simple, you know, one of my favorite, mo most formative films uh, uh, that I've watched is a film called Contempt uh, by Jean-Luc oh, Godard yes, and has a great score by uh, Georges Deleroux and, and the score, they use a lot of the same music sometimes in romantic pieces, sometimes in funny sequences, sometimes in extremely sad and dramatic mm -hmm. and it's very interesting to see how the music takes on a different character. Mm -hmm. depending on what it's being played against. And I find that process, in that movie, I feel like it does that almost like, you know, in a very good dark experimental way. It's in a very forward way. Uh, and and that really was something that always uh, marked me and, and that, that, that idea of, like, the, the piece of music being transformed by the characters. Mm. Well, that's nice that you, you, of course, le leaving space for their own internal music to listen to it, because if you're al also coming under their, their voices, I can imagine yeah. you know, how, how, yes, you're very, your style is very subtle. You mentioned a director, um, I don't know, was it Barry Levinson, someone that you'd worked with a lot uh, in Divine, and you're saying yeah. the music was Yeah, it was, ba Barry Levinson is the one that said the movie will spit out what it doesn't want, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, he, he was also one, you know, one of the directors that really showed me by simply sometimes, you know, he loved the process of me turning in a lot of music and he would cut it in a lot of different parts of the film. And he, it, he was one of the, the people that really was a, were very influential on, on how I work in like very, sometimes I could tell him what it was for, but he would sort of, he wouldn't ignore it, but he would certainly if he loved a piece of music, he would cut in a lot of different places. And he was in in a lot of the f work that we've done together. There are a lot of examples of that of that happening. Right. Yes, it's true because sometimes we don't always know what are the the strongest points or what is perceived or how it's uh, received and what the, the the real strengths. Yeah. Um. And so, do you? You know, so I'm. It's interesting. So, do you? Do you enjoy listening to your music, or like I don't know, like are you critical of your music? I'm very critical. Mm -hmm. I'm always half, you know, I'm interested and sort of half heartbroken every time I hear my music because mm -hmm. I, I just see that the things that are not as good as I wish they were. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very cliche thing to say. Mm -hmm. A lot of artists feel that way, but I'm not one of these people that I can't hear my music and I never want to see my work on. I don't. Mm -hmm. I find it. You know, it's, um, uh, I find it a very educational experience mm -hmm. and, you know, and I enjoy it. I try to write things that I would like to, I would enjoy listening to. Yes, I didn't mean to ask it that way. It's just, I know some people have said like, they or it was just coming back to 
saying about people hearing something else in it or finding the thing that they really love. Yeah. Um, so I'm very interested in those kind of conversations that you would have had with, uh, you know, the different directors you mentioned, of course, were doing that project with the great Donovan, so I guess it would be um, David Hollander now or Mary Levinson yeah. or Antoine Fuqua and Nicole Holofcina and what their different approaches are and what are some of those conversations and the notes you're making in the beginning stages. I mean, they all, you know, all of the, the, the filmmakers you mentioned. Or Denzel Washington as well. There's, there's a great, you know, know there's so many, yes. Yeah, and, and they all are very different. The one thing they all have in common, and I yet to find a director that doesn't have that, is that they all really understand and really, uh, they understand the power of music. They really, really, uh, they understand the power of music within their, their films and their narratives and the power for good and for bad. You know, in some cases, some directors are very, very concerned with how the music can influence the acting. Needless to say, Denzel Washington would be a great example of that. Same, same with Robert De Niro when I worked on The Good Shepherd. These are two of the greatest screen actors, you know, ever. I mean, I think nobody would argue with that. And and I think that they were very, very sensitive to the idea of the music pushing the drama and the emotion too far. And so with, with Denzel in particular, you know, the, on the one project that we worked together, Fences, he really was very, 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 uh, very serious about us being, not being ahead of the picture in any, in any way, shape or form and, and always letting the acting breathe letting the acting sort of lead the, lead the way and having the words and particularly with on fences with Denzel Washington having the words be really done that was that that was the goal you know and 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 the music had to really work with that and the Good Shepherd similarly uh, uh, although it was not based on a play but there were a lot of very very deep kind of philosophical and very poetic uh, pieces of dialogue that are at Roth Road and, and uh, but I find that our directors really they know that their film can you can make or break your film no matter how great what you have in there the score is the last one in line that can you know elevate it make it stronger or it can actually really 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 hurt it if it's done in the, in the wrong way Yes, but I mean, of course, they can. I, I, I don't know about the process, but uh, they can they can pare it down or soften it. So I yeah, there's a lot of there, yeah, there's a lot in the process. I mean, I find that one of the things I spend the most time doing once I present the music to a director or to a showrunner, like David Hollander, is a great example. Is that we tend to simplify things. David Hollander is big on on kind of getting to the essence of the music and trying to take out anything that is superfluous is extra and kind of really focusing what it's doing and finding you know the idea of less is more um, and I would say that that's also a, very much a, a motto for modern filmmaking the idea of less is more you know I mean of you just having the music just never push be be there, support it, but not push it. Um, and and now, our directors, I think, are very just like they would 
you know, if an actor is overacting, I think a composer can overact as well. And in the process of doing that, make everybody else overact. Mm, you have to compete with that. And so, but it's interesting that you get to, you, you worked with some, uh, sometimes you're not in the room with them, I understand, but it's a kind of collaboration with, with the actors as well, and you get to know their rhythms. That's interesting that uh, you're doing it over a period of time. Um, and as you think about every aspect, you're in every scene, isn't it strange? Uh, you're, so, you're, so, you're so distant, but you're in every single scene. Um, so uh, you, you're thinking about the rhythms almost sometimes like dance. Yes, very much like dance. I mean, I feel like that there's, there's for me, in, in film scoring, if you take it to the basics, I mean, you cannot kind of extract almost everything from from elements of opera. Mm -hmm. So a big part of film scoring would be the bulk of what I do in particular, being that I work on a lot of dramas, it's what we would call the recitative that happens under dialogue in an opera, right? So it's that music that is kind of more functional. And in a film, you don't do it exactly like a recitative in an opera, which is just like a piano playing chords. But there is this idea of just following the text. And I find that that's a very, um, a very uh, powerful tool and one that I find myself doing a lot. I, I will sometimes turn off the screen, but keep the dialogue on and write to the rhythm of the words. Then there's another mode that would be what I would call ballet mode, which is, you know, in, even in operas, they will have sections of ballet where people are dancing and and that's when there's no dialogue and people are moving and movement cues and kind of getting from A to B travel cues, you know, tend to, to work with this ballet mode. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the sort of like big overture mode where you are really pushing the picture and tends to happen on main title sequences or sometimes the end of a picture, like the end of Fences is a good example in the final, final cue of Fences. It's, uh, when um, they kind of see this miracle in the sky and um, and that's when music then is really at the top of the uh, of, of the heap, if you will, you know, at the top of the pile of, of, of the hierarchy of what's going on. And I find myself, you know, that one of the, 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 the parts of my job is to figure out what, which of these three things to do and when to do it. And, um, and in places like, you know, particularly in television where you have a lot of exposition and a lot of dialogue that is very important, but you still need the music, it's really, it's one of the things that I've honed in over many, many years is this ability to write under dialogue in a way that lets you really listen to it, but also have the music sort of uh, really, really support it and make the dialogue even clearer, if you will whatever you put under it with music and you have I was wondering about and I should say also to understand because I am not musically intelligent but to understand your music more I did uh, I was dancing to your music so it helped me it helped me have an understanding uh -huh. in some way and so I can see how it must be such a pleasure for um, uh, directors or showrunners to, to edit to to your music because of this flow and this these Soft yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, and there's a sense of discovery too, you know, mm -hmm. and, and some directors really, really 
love, love that sense of discovery. I mean, one, one director that was a lot like that was uh, Stephen Chbosky that um, we worked together on Wonder. Oh. And Stephen would cut my music all over the place and loved that process, loved sometimes what he would call happy accidents and and I sometimes call the Ching method of film scoring when you just kind of put a piece of music and stuff happens and, mm -hmm. and you know, you obviously only use what works but sometimes really magical things can happen and and, uh, and I think that's very much the process that, that Barry Levinson would, would, would do as well with his editor, they would just try to move the music around and see what it could do. And so often when, um, of course, um, you know, directors or showrunners are, are coming to you, there may, there is, I think, uh, uh, a Marcelo Zargos sound, but maybe a few different sounds. We were discussing it. Um, so so uh, some, I don't know how you would define your sound. We were talking about a little, and sometimes it seems a little bit outside of it. Like think about um, Sin Nombre. It seemed a little bit different. Uh, I, I was wondering what the thinking process was in, in that particular work. Yeah, so in, in Sinombre? Yes. Yeah, Sinombre was, um, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful film, first of all. So, you know, when you have material like that to work with, you're, you're already, like, way ahead, you know? I mean, and, and I mean, obviously, Gary Fukunaga went on to become, you know, one of today's great directors, and, and it was clear from the beginning what a, and I don't use this word, you know, lightly, but what a genius he is, a genius director he is, you know, and Sinombre, um, um, it, it's interesting, Somebody, you, you always set out, you know, nobody ever sets out to do the same thing twice, mm. but at the same time, um, you are who you are, you know, and the, although music is not like my face, like an actor would be, where they're always going to have their face, there's, there's an element that stays with you, but, um, I think you you always try to push it a little further and there are certain projects where you're able to kind of break new ground, which is something that, that you know, every artist aims to do as often as possible. And, uh, but there are times when, you know, a director knows what you do and they have a very good idea of what they're looking for. It doesn't mean that you're going to just do the same old thing, but they, they, they might not necessarily be looking to reinvent the wheel. <clears throat> With Sinombre, the idea was was to find a balance between folkloric music of Central Central America and also a sort of a noir feeling, you know, and a kind of a crime feeling. And so I always um, thought of it as like Mexican noir, and and very early on. I had this uh, this idea that it was going to be a Mexican noir score. I wasn't even sure exactly what that meant, but sometimes a key word that you create for yourself. It was not even something that came from Jerry, but um, it it just pushed pushes you in a in a different in a different place. And sometimes you know you you might be hired in a project because they're using your music in the temp, and that sometimes can make it harder to to break away but in the case of uh, number there was no temp I never listened to any temp, temp score and we just did it from the movie uh, dry and I think that might also have been one of the reasons why it 
came out uh, very individual. Oh, oh yes, because you're sometimes influ- I mean, I imagine not often, but you say you sometimes this temp score kind of overlays on what your natural music. Is. I don't know. I'm maybe going to add that one. Yeah, it does. You know, it, 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 it just kind of happens. You know, even if you're not like, even if you're setting out to do something different, but the temp score influences uh, what's there. I mean, it's certainly every composer will tell you that. <clears throat> working without a temp score is the best. But very rarely there's enough time for that and or even a willingness to do that. So you get used to it. I'm not saying that the only reason Tignombre, I think one of, you know, Carrie's filmmaker was very inspiring to me and as an artist he was very inspiring and pushed, you know, pushed the, 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 the creative boundaries, you know, and and, um, and I think, you know, and sometimes, you know, I mean, I've I've done a lot of movies, and and they all are, you know, they all are different. Yeah, I think many. And also, they all, yeah, and they all, no, and what I mean is that they also affect people differently, you know, Mm -hmm. some people get very moved by a particular thing, and others by other, and music is subjective by nature, so there is, I I really, I don't believe that there's one way to ever score a, a, you know, a, a scene. I feel like even at best there's like a handful of ways you could do it with vastly different approaches and styles of music and still be very effective. So, you know, you take your best shot, as they say. Yes. And so, um, yeah, I didn't mean to focus on that because there are other things like even like American Ultra, I think the sound is again very different or Hollywood and or The Door on the Floor, they're all, they're all yeah. very different. But I would like to, it would be really great to, we've mentioned a number of the scores you, you've done, but um, which pieces that you feel are very representative so we can include? Or representative or some sure. or kind of reveal your process. Maybe I'll try to find them as well here. So as you yeah. mentioned. No, no, no problem. Oh. I'll tell you, um, from Sinombre, um, I think Into the Storm um, is, a, is a good one. Um, I'll pick one from each, um, uh, you know, or at least a few of them, and then you can you can see, you know, what 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 you can fit, you know. Um, so whatever we've talked about. Uh, for, yeah. Yeah. For uh, going the floor, I would say um, reprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hollywood Land, Superman Falls. And, and what was your thinking? So I guess we'll, we'll bring those in. But what was your approach? You already discussed it with Sinombre a bit, but how did you, you know, break down the different elements and uh, just begin? Can you, can you repeat your question again? How did you break down the different elements for those, those scores that you've cited there and just... Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's maybe it's, it's hard for me to ask because I don't understand the process of making music. No, no, it's okay. But yeah. uh, but tell me, uh, specifically about Sinombre or, oh, sure, or yeah, why did I choose those that. tracks? Yeah, and yes, exactly. Why did you choose those tracks, and what was the how did what was the approach, and how did those pieces of music evolve? Yeah, you know, Into the Storm is 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 kind of like it's it's a very cinematic sequence when. Um, the the two protagonists sort of start their journey and their train journey and it's the leaving of the train starts quite dark and and so 
sort of towards the later part of the queue um, it becomes very beautiful the landscape from the sort of crime and poverty goes to just the beauty of nature in in um, in Guatemala where they are and but then it's this really amazing shot and I believe that it was it was not a CGI shot and it's the train riding into a storm which is what the characters are doing and so that's a, that's an example of where you have this music that becomes kind of you know almost optimistic but the picture is coloring the music and you see this coming storm you know headed towards you and uh and it's just thematically a, a, a very you know nice majestic statement of the of the main team for Sinomber. Um for uh, Hollywood Land, Superman Falls is the very opening of of the uh, of the movie and you basically have the shots of like you're flying in in the sky and like Superman you know, Hollywood Land deals with George Reeves, was the, character, the, the the actor who played the original Superman. But at some point, there's a very fast fall, like Superman is falling, and and you go down to find a crime scene where George Reeves is uh, found shot shot in the head, and the the whole movie is about whether he committed suicide or somebody might have uh, killed him, and and that's a case where like more of a prelude and that cue is very simple and very atmospheric but it really captures the journey ahead and it's kind of like a very simple little overture that kind of uh, starts in this dreamy place of Superman or like you any of us who has been in a dream where you're flying and then when you wake up and you kind of fall down and it was a it was a uh, an interesting way of of uh, um of, of, of starting a film and, a, and an interesting thing to, to score and very much in that sort of ballet kind of mode that I was talking earlier. And then for During the Floor, uh, Reprise is actually a collection of themes from the movie that I put together as a, as a freestanding composition, but that I feel like you kind of get uh, a beat of all of the different and atmospheres without feeling like a, uh, you know, like a medley. It just, it, it became this piece and people have licensed it many times as a composition, just as a freestanding composition. But I feel like the spirit of the film is very much captured in the track of uh, Reprise. And I would like, since I'm doing this group portrait of the Ray Dawn event, to speak about some, you know, maybe a particular piece of music or or your approach, I and mean, you spoke about it a little bit already, but... Yeah, I, I think one great example, it's very early on, but I think it's a very good example uh, of is, um, is a cue called Wolf at the Gate. Mm -hmm. uh, some of this, the title might be slightly different in the CD, but you you get it, you know. If, if, but, you know, if, if something doesn't match, you can always, you know, call me and, and I will, you know, point you in the right direction. And um, Wolf, Wolf of the Gate is, um, uh, just one second, um, sorry about that, um, 
Wolf of the Gate is the piece that happens when Mickey, yes, that's uh, right, John Boyd's character, comes, yeah, comes by by the um, by uh, Ray's house mm -hmm. without Ray being there in the end of the uh, of the episode. And I always found that in the end of the day, Ray Donovan, for me, if you really cut it down to the basics, is this very elaborate cat and mouse game and this fight to the death between Ray and Mickey, you know, and I always found that, you know, like a western. I mean, most people, I think, would say that, you know, after Ray, I mean, everybody's favorite character is always Mickey, because he's, I don't know, he's just, I mean, John Boyd's just, it's just one of those roles that, that are so perfect that he really... You're so crazy and free. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it really is, and kind of like, it, it, it's also one of the few characters that is allowed to have humor in the show, and I think that makes a big difference. But it's just really a great chemistry between those two characters. And I feel like The Wolf at the Door has this kind of, also a little bit of a noir feeling that Ray Donovan has throughout, and certainly that cue has, has that kind of, uh, has that kind of vibe. So you suggest something that also, because often you're writing for drama, and so how does it change when you're writing for comedy, or if, you do, if you're not underlining with comedy, you're making it kind of dramatic, uh, as opposed to, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, comedy, you know, is the old thing, you know, one that the, the old actor saying, you know, dying is easy, comedy is hard, you know, and um, I, you know, comedy is, is, a, is, a very, is a real mysterious thing. For me, and I think for most people, but it's a very, it's a very unforgiving thing to to score comedies. I find because if you step on it, there's nothing worse than the music stepping on a joke, and nothing, um, nothing is more glaringly obvious than a thing that is not funny. And I've learned very one of I think the first comedy I have, I've ever done was. Little did I know that I was working with three absolute masters of comedy. It was uh, this movie called Strangers with Candy. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was directed by Paul Danello, but it was written by Paul Danello, Amy Sedaris, and Stephen Colbert. Mm -hmm. And their, their, sen their sensibilities are very much there. Um, and But I, I dealt mostly with Paul. He was the director. And I would see how he would sometimes talk about getting my music and... It wasn't necessarily about cutting in other places, but he would sometimes move the music around a little bit, and all of a sudden it was ten times as funny as what I wrote. Mm -hmm. And and I find that comedy has this very exact science to it, which is and and I and I saw that in that very early experience. They would also play a piece, uh, a theme with music and one without. If the one without was funnier. That's the one that went always, yeah. and and I think it should be like that, and and it's a little bit like why I find that, in although they're in very extreme sides of the spectrum, comedy and horror have a lot in common in the sense that they're very scientific. In a horror film, it's all about being scared and getting scared and you know frightened. Sometimes it's a cumulative thing. Sometimes it's actual jump scares, but. Um, you, again, like, what wins is what makes it either scarier or funnier. 
which is different than a drama. A drama is a lot more subjective, I find, you know, and sometimes it can be about something else. But comedy in particular is very unforgiving. And I've been lucky to work with, with some great you know, comedy, you know, directors, uh, none greater from the ones that I've worked in than uh, Nicole Holopsenner, whose work I just adore and, and kind of, just love, love her work, and and the fact that her comedy is so sort of uh, uh, how can I put it? It's so complex and so emotional at the same time, and and it's the comedy that comes from life, and it's mm-hmm. not comedy of people cracking jokes or doing something outrageous on the screen. It's just sometimes the absurdity of life and. And I find that Nicole, yeah, they, Nicole really captures that in her films a lot, and uh, and very rarely does she want the music to be too funny, you know. And and most of the time, the music has to ride this line of being more supporting the irony and being more ironic than full out funny, mm-hmm. because the performances are so well tempered and so well sort of tweaked that um, the um, that you know again if you put something too funny and too slapstick like it, it doesn't work and and she I always when I even when I'm not working with with Nicole I try to imagine with this past Nicole task of like you know bad comedy music you know and and, and kind of you know because some people have a very refined sense of, of comedic timing, and I just hers is one that I I really really admire, uh, you know, more than practically anybody else, certainly anybody else that I've that I've worked with. Yeah, well, their characters are so human, as you say. It's not it's not very broad. Yeah. And th- I'm just thinking now of some you you know you know you're going en route to a dubbing session for the the final season uh, of the affair, and I'm thinking also of the Ray Donovan or different. Um, different projects where you're writing music for people who maybe are not telling the truth or not even honest with themselves or are so uncertain I, I was wondering about how you musically I mean I don't know if you can break it down for someone who doesn't know about music how do you express hello how do you express those uncertainties or well um, ambiguity yeah no that's a, that's a great it's a great great question and I think the that you have to love all your characters. And that's something that I learned very early on. And one one great producer that I worked with, uh, James Seamus, who's also a great screenwriter and great director and great everything. And he used to always talk about how we have to have compassion for the characters. And I've always really um, taken that to heart, that it's, it really is... Um, can't have contempt for your characters ever. You have to really, really um, love them, no matter how flawed or no matter how monstrous they are. I mean, I'm just finished. I just finished uh, writing uh, the score for the Loudest Voice, which is uh, uh, biopic, bi- bio series, the bio, you know, biography of uh, Roger Ailes, and yeah. you know, and we couldn't. We we had to go to it with a very um, you can't go at it hating the character. You know what I mean? You have to like really uh, uh, you 
like you said, there's lying, there's cheating, there's, well, there's even killing, and I mean, don't get me started about Ray and, mm-hmm. and the Donovans, you know, I mean, they are very, very flawed human beings, but I, I think that what the, the key remains in having love for those characters as you're writing them and not judging them, because uh, we are, you know, it's not my place to judge, it's my place to illuminate what's in there without any kind of moral or, or personal judgment and you know so if it's a monster you have to you have to embrace the monster and, and kind of love the monster in a way does that make sense it does make sense and I'm gonna get back to you on monsters but I would also like to talk about how you create um, you were talking about transitions before maybe more so in dance or, or theater that's done a lot um, you know how you create um, passage of time when you're scoring yeah, I mean, that's that's a very, you know, that's one of the things that it's, it's you know, that you, as a composer, you you learn to navigate that very early on. The idea of, of when there's a time cut, mm-hmm. whether it's the passage of time in the sense that you have a sequence where, like, on fences there's a sequence where you see the passing of time and the street and kids in the, in bicycles and stuff, and and you have to keep this, this this feeling that time has passed and sometimes you just have to remind the audience that there's a time cut and we're actually in the future or, or the past, you know, in the case of the affair it could be. But that's one of the, the, the you know, the, the, the first things that I think as a composer you, you learn to navigate it's because music happens over time and so music is sort of uniquely suited to score the passage of time. Uh, almost more than than all, all the other arts in a, in a certain way because music demands time uh, um, and it, it can only happen over time and so I think it's something that you just that there's this idea of travel music that is I think all different composers have a different way in how they achieve that and I, again to get back into the inspiration in opera you also in opera have this idea of traveling, mu- traveling music since you have to give the in that case, even without people seeing something, you have to give them the, 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 the illusion that time is passing. And and there are certain tools that you can use. I mean, a lot of the times, you know, there might be the equivalent of a musical clock that we call, which is an element that kind of moves in a constant rhythm over the entire piece of music and kind of gives a little bit of a light heartbeat to it. And I find that in a lot of the passage of time cues, there's uh, uh, there's an element of that. But then when you're talking about the affair, it's a lot of the times it's the idea of memory. So it's passing of time, but within our mind. And just like I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation that I, for me, my memories of, uh, of, my musical, early musical memories have to do with nature. That has to do with also what I selected in my memory. Mm-hmm. And a show like The Affair, which is all about that and how people are, uh, you know, how people are, uh, you know, how the recollections of something are always going to be different, even if they themselves remember now and remember a few years from now, and but certainly between characters. And and I find that what what really 
show of like really getting to that place very fast. And I think the music and the way that it's shot and the way that it's written, obviously, uh, I'll work in conjunction. But there's something about like when a passage of the time in your mind that is then it's not about the clocks and it's more about the suspended, almost like the absence of clocks. And it's the, the idea of suspended time, which memory is more like that since in our memory, all, all time happens at once, right? I mean, everything is happening at once. And uh, and so I find that that is, is another another side of, of passage of time portraying music. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It's it's very well expressed, and I I was fascinated in and how you can how you can show that someone is is longing for someone or regretting or or loving. I don't know how to break it down into all the blocks of music, but how you're providing the inner voice. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's there's also an element of just simply alchemy. You know that you know you a certain piece of music can can create a certain can suggest something like that. But, um, you know, I, I would say that when it comes to memory and nostalgia, I find that slower music, particularly when it's abstract memory, like, it's not like, it's the difference between the, the, the affair doesn't, when you see in a movie a flashback, you, you, you accept that that's what happened. But on the affair, right after the pilot, you know that it's, that's not necessarily what happened, but it's how this person remembers. And, um, and those, I think, warrant a kind of, you know, as I said, a different, a different type of treatment from the music. And so, does that make you working for a long period on a project like that? And and I know that that's not well. It's a, a unique aspect of the affair that, for those who haven't seen it, that there's a lot of different perspectives, beginning with um, um, Alistair and Noah, and then broadening out into the other characters where they have a version of events. But since you've been working on that for a while, does it m make you question, you know, your experience of memory? Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, we all remember things differently, you know, and no matter how much we try, and I don't think it's necessarily, uh, uh, you know, always a matter of honesty, you know, and I mean, some, I, I think that people truly do remember and recall things differently based on who they are. And... Um, and so it, it, it's yeah I, I guess I, I, I am personally uh, aware of how uh, how imperfect memory can be but also as an artist and as a composer and as a writer that draws on memory as my main source of inspiration including sometimes watching a scene and then just playing something without looking at the scene remembering what it was and trying to capture that so uh I think it's a, it's not a perfect system, but I think that the, the beauty lies exactly in those differences that people will will have in remembering things. And probably art lies very much somewhere in that area there, if you wanted to get very philosophical. Yes, and I also, and I don't know if this is a generalization, but I imagine it from conversations with musicians, composers, or also novelists or different poets, there, there's a, a kind of a, a general like romantic bent to the way of thinking and remembering. I, I imagine. I, I don't know if that's true. I think so. Yeah, I agree. I think we, we, you know, artists tend to remember things more romantically than not. You know, so you know, so 
So the experience of going and getting the coffee on the street, you know, down down the block could be something profound and you kind of will remember maybe something beautiful you saw or maybe something disturbing you saw, but I think we tend to crave more emotionally charged memories in a way as opposed to just remembering, um, you know, boredom, for instance. Although, you know, it's one thing that I've read a lot about different artists and writers is how boredom, especially during childhood, was a big conduit for creativity. I remember reading uh, something uh, about uh, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, the uh, 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 creator of Hamilton, and talking about how he felt like if he had, you know, an iPad as a kid, he might not have written a lot of some great songs that he did just because he was bored and it was the summer and he just writing. And I feel like that daydreaming and that kind of boredom, uh, all that daydreaming that we do as children, I feel like it, it really impacts who we are as artists, as adults. At least, I should say, that's been my experience. But I love reading, um, uh, you know, about other artists' processes and, 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 and how they went about their, their rituals. I mean, there's actually one great book called Daily Rituals of Great Artists, or I'm paraphrasing, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it takes you, yeah, it's it's a wonderful, uh, and it's a wonderful reminder of how similar a lot of things that artists through time have been with, you know, a lot of the idea of communication and of solitary walks and, and things like that, but, uh, but I think that how we remember things is or at least for me, how I remember things is integral to, to my art. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Amanda Jane Saletti. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.